Well, welcome to all of you. My name is Mike, and I will be your guide through Daniel chapter 11 today. I'm going to start with a story from a magazine uh, put out by the uh, Moody Evangelistic Association, or whatever that's called for now. But it's from 1986 or so. And this guy who is a mission, uh, missionary to China is writing it. Now, you've got to understand that when he was going to China, it wasn't nearly as open as it is now. And don't kid yourself, it's not nearly as open as they would like you to believe it is right now. Maybe in the larger cities, but certainly not in the provinces. But, um, yeah, so this is uh, a true story. Eric Fellman speaks of meeting a Chinese couple in Hong Kong while he's traveling into China. He said, a friend took me down a narrow alley to a second floor flat. You can tell right away he's British. To meet a man recently released from prison in China. I knew I would be pressed to carry Bibles. Second clue that he's British. He's being pressed to carry Bibles, to smuggle them into the country. And gospel literature on my trip. But I was hesitant and tried to mask my fear with rationalizations about legalities and other concerns. A Chinese man in his 60s opened the door. His smile was radiant, but his back was bent almost double. He led us to a sparsely furnished room, a Chinese woman of about the same age came in to serve tea. Third clue. As she lingered, I couldn't help but notice how they touched and lovingly looked at each other. My staring apparently did not go unnoticed, for soon they were both giggling. What is it? I asked my friend. Oh, nothing, he said with a smile. They just wanted you to know that it was okay. They're newlyweds. I learned that they had been engaged in 1949 when he was a student at Nanking Seminary. On the day of their wedding rehearsal, Chinese communists seized the seminary. They took the students to a hard labor prison. For the next 30 years, the bride-to-be was allowed only one visit to her fiance per year. Each time, following their brief minutes together, the man would be called to the warden's office. You may go home with your bride, he said, if you will renounce Christianity. Year after year, this man replied with just one word, no. I was stunned. How had he been able to stand the strain for so long, being denied his family, his marriage, and even his health? When I asked, he seemed astonished. Astonished at my question, he replied, With all that Jesus has done for me, how could I betray him? The next day, I requested that my suitcase be crammed with Bibles and training literature for Chinese Christians. I determined not to lie about the materials 
yet lost not one minute of sleep worrying about the consequences. And as God had planned, my suitcases were never inspected. True story. We're talking about sacrifice today out of Daniel 11. It really isn't one of the major themes of the chapter. Daniel 11 is probably the second most difficult passage I've had to look at and preach on in the gospel, I'm sorry, in the book of Daniel, uh, chapter 9 being the most difficult, at least for me. And I'm going to take one section of this historical prophetic story and I'm going to kind of camp on that. But just so you know, there's a lot of other stuff in there that I'm not going to be able to cover. I don't have the time for it. And I may not be intelligent enough for it either. So I'm going to try and give you a flavor for what's going on. It's more prophecy. Remember, this is like about 500 B.C. Daniel is a Jewish exile living in Babylon. He's an old man now. God is sending angels to give him pictures of what's going to happen in the future. We've had a lot of that already. And this continues that trend. And this is what the angel tells him, starting in verse 2. It'll be up there on the wall. Now then, I tell you the truth. Three more kings will arise in Persia, and then a fourth, who will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Now, if you know anything about history from watching American film, <laughs> you know about the 300, right? And how the Greeks fought against the Persians. This was going on for many years, back and forth. All right, so he's predicting that um, one of these Persian kings is going to go and to fight against Greece, one of them who's wealthier than all of them. Um, and lo and behold, if you read your Bibles, you'll find out that uh, in this line of kings uh, of Persia comes one of the kings who is the husband of Queen Esther. Just thought I'd bring those two stories together then. As a matter of fact, the king who fought against the 300 at Thermopylae was the husband of King Esther, I believe. If I'm wrong, tell me later. Verse 3, Then a mighty king will arise who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. We'll find out very soon. This is Alexander the Great. After he has arisen, his empire will be broken up and parceled out to the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power that he exercised, because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. Maybe some of you have seen Colin Farrell in that movie. <laughs> I don't believe I'm referencing film for history. It's so... Twisted. But at least these figures may be somewhat familiar to you, right? All right. So, Alexander the Great arrives in the scene. We've seen this in other prophecies before chapter 11. And he dies at the peak of his power at a young age, like 33 years old. 
and his four generals split up his empire into four different regions. You have uh, Lysimachus, Cassander, more in the west, but then on the eastern side, you have Seleucus and you have Ptolemy. Now, Seleucus rules a pretty big empire, actually, that is based in Syria. And then Ptolemy, which is P-T-O-L-E-M-Y, Ptolemy rules what is basically northern Africa. Now, what is between Syria and Egypt and northern Africa? The land of Israel. He will go on, the angel will go on talking about the king of the north and the king of the south. I just want you to be aware that he's talking about those two kingly dynasties that come from Seleucus and from Ptolemy. And the reason that the angel's talking to Daniel about this is because it concerns Israel. The whole book is about Israel, the Jews, what's going to happen. And so as these two kings or these two kingly lines fight for dominance in that region of the world, first one and then the other will have jurisdiction over the Holy Land. And that's why the angel's talking to Daniel about it. All right. What of these kings in the line of Seleucus, the northern Syrian kingdom, is a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, often referred to as Antiochus the Madman, because he was batshit crazy. He was used, I would say, by Satan and his demons in ways that other kings have not been used, maybe more on the line of someone like an Adolf Hitler or a Joseph Stalin. Because he wanted to wipe out Jews. All right. Verse 21, we're going to skip down to verse 21. He will be succeeded by a contentful person, a contemptible person, who had, has not been given the honor of royalty. He will invade the kingdom when his people feel secure. He will seize it through intrigue. Then an overwhelming army will be swept away before him. Both it and a prince of the covenant will be destroyed. After coming to an agreement with him, he will act deceitfully, and with only a few people he will rise to power. When the richest provinces feel secure, he will invade them and will achieve what neither his fathers nor his forefathers did. He will distribute plunder, loot, and wealth among his followers. He will plot the overthrow of fortresses, but only for a time. At the appointed time, he will invade the south again. But this time, the outcome will be different from what it was before. Ships of the western coastlands will oppose him, and he will lose heart. Then he will turn back and vent his fury against the Holy Covenant. He will return and show favor to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Okay, this is about Antiochus the Madman. He has succeeded in capturing part of Egypt, but not the whole thing. He goes back to take the whole thing, but he stopped because now... The southern kingdom has made an alliance with the western coastlands. And if you're in that part of the world, the western coastlands include Italy, 
The Roman Empire had come on the scene with their legions, and they basically stopped Antiochus from taking over Egypt and the rest of the Ptolemy lands. All right. This pisses Antiochus off. He goes back to the Holy Land, and because they're not doing exactly what he had asked them to do, even though he had put somewhat of a puppet regime in place, he massacres 40,000 Jews in one single day, sells another 40,000 into slavery, abolishes the Jewish religion, stops the sacrifices, makes it illegal to be a Jew for over three years. This goes on. Now, just to tie it into stuff you already know, the way that period of time ends is with the Maccabean Revolt. It was a Jewish revolt, and they had a miracle that happened during the revolt. It had to do with oil for the lamps. You've heard of Hanukkah? Anybody here heard of Hanukkah? Okay. Chanukah, Charlie? Anybody know? Okay, whatever. All right, so you've heard of that. Well, it's the Festival of Lights, and it has to do with this revolt against Antiochus the Madman, where they finally restore the temple and restore the Jewish religion. All right. Verse 31. Back to Antiochus. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. Basically, he sacrifices a pig inside the Jewish temple. And think about it. Think about it. You love the smell of bacon unless you're an Orthodox Jew. Isn't that true? Then it's an abomination to have a pig sacrificed in your holy temple. It says, with flattery, he'll corrupt those who have violated the covenants, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. When they fall, they will receive a little help, and many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end, where it will still come at the appointed time. He wasn't talking about the Jewish people. I, I would think for sure he was talking about the American church. But this is where we're going to stop for a while. Imagine being Daniel and receiving this vision. It's got to be devastating to you. You're hoping for your exiled country men and women to be able to go back and restore your life in the Holy Land. And you find out, yes, indeed, you are going to go back, but when you get back, it's not going to be any easier. As a matter of fact, it's going to get a lot worse. You find out, that some of the Jews who make it back in the future are going to end up cooperating with this madman. Thinking that it'll be okay. And this is what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, 
How do you relate to the predominant ruling culture when you're a child of God? I'm sure they wanted to compromise just a little bit. That is the way the devil works. He asks us to compromise just a little bit. And then somewhere down the road, he changes the rules and things happen that we did not expect. I've told this story before, but I'm going to tell it again because, unfortunately, I've dealt with it way too much in the lives of young married couples. But when things weren't going so well with my wife and I, there was a woman at work who seemed very, very nice to me. She was a Christian, she was married, she had kids, and we got to talking. I could tell she thought I was pretty cool. That felt really good because Mary at that point was not, for obviously good reason. Although I didn't think so. And so I started talking to her. It seemed innocent enough. It was just a little bit of a compromise to talk to her when I had to go up to the office and do some stuff or whatever. This is where it ended up. It ended up in an emotional affair that took up way too much of my thought life. I was imagining what would happen if her husband was killed in a car wreck and Mary met an untimely death and then we got together and would it work out and it was stupid. It was stupid. And this is what I said to myself as I dialed my pastor's phone number. I never meant for it to go this far. I never meant for it to go this far. I only compromised a little bit. I know way too many guys who are just clicking on pictures of girls in bikinis on the Internet because that's safe. They're in bikinis. I can see them at the beach. I can see them walking down the street and not much more than that. And then within the span of a half an hour, they are looking at some of the most vile, corrupt, disgusting pornographic websites you can imagine. This is what they say. Mike, I never meant for it to go that far. Or you tell a little tiny lie at work to save your butt. Because you don't want to get in trouble even a little bit. But then what happens down the road, like all lies, they just get bigger and bigger. you got to cover your tracks more and more. And next thing you know, you're in danger of losing your job if somebody finds out the truth and you say to yourself, I never meant for it to go this far. This is what was happening to the Jews in the future for Daniel. In the past, for us, during the reign of Antiochus the Madman, they had compromised their beliefs just a little bit, and by the time it's all over, the Jewish religion is outlawed, the temple has been desecrated, 
Their countrymen are being slaughtered by the tens of thousands. The devil never plays fair. He flatters you, it says. With flattery, he leads them astray. See, flattery is not encouragement. There's a difference, okay? A man flatters you sometimes, ladies, when he wants to get your clothes off. He will say all sorts of things to you to make you feel pretty, to make you feel desired to tell you how much he needs you. And his one goal is to get you naked. He's not trying to encourage you or build your self-esteem. He's what they call a lothario. He's a lascivious rake. He's a jerk is what he is. He's a player. And if you don't know that, and you are willfully not listening, at least in this sermon. The enemy is out to make you a hypocrite. He is out to make you a play actor in your religious life. That's what the enemy is out to do. And he will use important, powerful very desirable people to do that. And it happened in the life of the people of Israel once they got back into their promised land. Now, remember before when the angel who's speaking and the archangel Michael were engaged in a battle with the, the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece, the two fallen angelic evil powers who were over those empires? If you were here, I talked about how in both of those scenarios, there were efforts to wipe out the Jewish people. With uh, the Persians, it was through a guy named Haman, and then, of course, uh, Esther came and saved the day. And then with the Greeks, it was through the Seleucid Empire, this king of the north, and we just got done talking about that. It occurs to me, that uh, we who are Christians have the same enemies. Does that make you scared? We have the same exact enemies as the Jews did. As the people of God today, we have demonic principalities who are out to make sure that we turn out to be hypocrites. What did Antiochus do? It says he abolished the daily sacrifice. Verse 31. He abolished the daily sacrifice. Shut down their practice of their faith. He abolished the daily sacrifice. And I'm wondering, what's the New Testament correlation? All right, they had the temple, right? It was where God dwelled. Where does God dwell in New Testament believers? 
What is the temple of God in the New Testament? Anybody want to take a wild guess? Us. Our hearts, our bodies, the church, us in here. And I'm wondering, could the devil's plan be the same? What he wants you to do is to abolish the daily sacrifice. Because we know in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, it says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Sacrifice in the New Testament. A living sacrifice. A daily sacrifice by God's people as worship to God. And what's the opposite of daily sacrifice? It's conforming to the patterns of this world. If the Apostle Paul's words aren't good enough for you, let's go to Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 23 through 25. I'm using the New Living Translation, if only because I crave noun and pronoun agreement as a former English teacher. Then he said to the crowd, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways. Take up your cross daily and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but are yourself lost or destroyed? If anybody anybody wants to be my follower... You must turn from your selfish ways. Take up your cross daily and follow me. Take up your cross daily. What does that sound like? Sounds like a daily sacrifice to me. Does it sound like a daily sacrifice to you? Could Jesus be talking about the same thing the Apostle Paul was talking about, which is about the same thing the angel was talking about? I think so. I think so. And what is sacrifice the opposite of? What does the world look like? Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is what we don't want to look like. But mark this, verse 2, verse 3. There will be terrible times in the last days. I'm sorry, verse 1, 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. If you took all those words and put a giant equal sign, one word might be selfishness. Selfishness characterizes 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5. You are focused on yourself. The religion of the Babylonians all over again. Focused on self. Have it your way. Live your life my way. You got to think about number one. You got to take care of you. 
Our culture is soaked in selfishness. Every ad you see on television is designed to make you unhappy. Did you realize that? I used to be in advertising. Our job is to make you dissatisfied with your life until you get the thing that we are trying to sell you. It's very simple. Because you are important and you need what we have to offer. You deserve what we have to offer. Your life would not be complete with what we have without what we have to offer. Hence the phrase, it's all about me or it's all about you. Now here's the deal, folks. You can be a selfish son of a gun, saved by grace, loving Jesus, still go to heaven. You know that? You could be saved. There's a lot of jerks who are being saved. I just have to turn on the TV and wonder how I'm going to spend eternity with some of these people. How is that going to be heaven? That's what I wondered to myself. You can be selfish and go to heaven. But here's the deal. If you don't sacrifice yourself daily, you will miss your purpose. You'll get heaven, but you'll miss why you were created. You'll get to spend eternity with Jesus, but you will not have grasped your calling in life. Because you cannot separate your calling from daily sacrifice. Impossible. Impossible. Jesus pled in the garden that somehow, maybe, we could separate those things. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But yet not what I want, what you want. Jesus' sacrifice made him worthy of the calling to be the Savior of the world. Here's the strange thing I know about being in ministry. It is not my victories that people want to hear about. They're not comforted by how well I have done in life, how many Bible verses I have memorized, or how many times God has rescued me from certain situations. You want to know what encourages people? It's how many times... I have messed up, and God has rescued me, and all glory goes to him. It's when I have done something that I wouldn't have wanted to do, like stop seeing the woman at work totally and begin dating my wife again. Let me tell you about those first few dates. Mary and I would go out. Be sitting across the table from one another. And it was not pleasant conversation at all. She had a lot of gripes, legitimate gripes against me. And I had to listen. Because I had planted bad seed in our relationship and I was reaping the harvest. 
And God is not mocked. A man reaps what he sows. And I had to reap the bad fruit even while I was planting the good seed. So that a week from tomorrow, Mary and I celebrate 35 years of marriage. And we like each other. I mean, she's been planting good seed, and I've been planting good seed. It's been a sacrifice. We haven't liked it all the time. We haven't liked each other all the time. It's been difficult. Lots of long conversations late into the night. I'm putting toothpicks on my eyes to keep my eyes open to make sure she knows I want to listen to her. She keeps forgiving me over and over and over and over again for the same stupid stuff that I do. And I'm telling you, it's amazing. We were having dinner with Jim and Amy Croft. Both been married 30 plus years. It was so funny. We were starting to tell like marriage stories, like war stories from the early days. And they have them and we have them. Pretty much any couple I think that's worth their salt has them. Anyway, so um, Amy says, so about what year was it when things started getting really good for you guys? Because for us, it was like 20 years. I'm going, yeah, it was probably a few more than 20 years. I would have missed the calling of being a loving husband if I had not learned to sacrifice my wants and desires in favor of what God would have me do. Look, selfishness is the default program, not sacrifice, okay? Selfishness is the default program. How many people here have children? Raise your hands. Did any of you ever have to teach your children how to be selfish? Did anybody? No. It comes naturally. Now, it's like the package software when you buy your computer, okay? It's what comes with. Sacrifice is not. Sacrifice is not. I want you to share the cookie with your sister. I don't want to share the cookie with my sister. I remember as a tiny, tiny little kid, my mom was, was making these uh, Greek meatballs. They're called kefetes. And, and I was like four or younger. We were still in our old house. And I remember going up to the stove and begging for a little Greek meatball. And my mom, you know, would take one out of the frying pan and she would let it cool for a while and then she would give it to me and I was so happy. But of course then Mark, who's two years younger, comes up and asks for the same thing. But Mark's, he's like two. He can barely get his mouth around one, much less chew it. And so Mark grabs one and he toddles off. We go in the living room and I'm done with my meatball. And Mark, I don't know how he does this with the meatball in his hand, but he gets on the couch at two years old, and he sits down on the couch, and he falls asleep with the meatball in his mouth. <laughs> and I am pissed off thinking, I could have had that meatball, and I would have enjoyed it, and it's just sitting there in his mouth <laughs> doing nothing. 
remember running to my mom going, Mom, Mom, Mark fell asleep with a meatball in his mouth. That is not in the notes. <laughs> Just so you know. <laughs> Selfishness is the opposite of sacrifice. We're tempted if we're going to sacrifice at all just to give a little bit for a short time. Hence, short-term mission trips. <laughs> I mean, vacations with a purpose. Let's call them what they are, okay? Vacations with a purpose. And I'm all for short-term mission trips. We have short-term mission trips here. We've got one right now in Glasgow for a month. But here's the trick. We're in Glasgow for four weeks, and we're there every year for the past seven years. Not the same people. We've committed to helping out the inner city mission in Glasgow, Scotland for the long haul. We want to sacrifice. We want to make sure we send people every year. And people sacrifice in order to go and in order to be sent because other people are, are, are donating to that. We don't want to give above our comfort level. And, I mean, I'll say this, and I think this is true more with this generation than it is with generations past. I don't think you guys know the meaning of sacrifice much compared to your grandparents. Because you want to give out of your excess. If all your bills are paid and you get your tax return, then maybe you'll give some of it to God's purposes. But if it hurts, you're not as willing to give it. If it's going to cut into seeing the latest Star Trek film or the latest Iron Man film or coffee money or cigarette money or it's going to cut into dinners out, we're not as apt to do that. And I'm saying that the scriptures are calling you, young people, to a higher sacrifice than you have known heretofore. Let me tell you about sacrifice. It's not a sacrifice if there's no choice. I mean, we're doing this fast coming up, right? If you're too poor to go to the grocery store and buy food, you're not fasting. Right. It's not the same thing. Okay. It just isn't. I don't know what to say about that, except, I mean, if you have no money to ask a girl out on a date, gentlemen, you're not sacrificing your dating life. You understand that concept? If you go to a wedding shower and you re-gift something that you didn't want from your wedding shower, it's not a sacrifice. It cost you nothing. You didn't have to even have to go and spend time looking for it in the store and sitting in your closet. You can't sacrifice what's not yours. If your company 
gives donations to the United Way or something, you can't take credit for that. Even the IRS won't let you take credit for that. And God is much smarter than the IRS, as evidenced from (laughs) current events. All right. But nothing of spiritual significance comes without sacrifice. Seriously, nothing comes without sacrifice. So I want you to think about this fast coming up. I want it to cost you something. I want you to give up the things that you like best. I don't care if it's just one thing. Like maybe you love Diet Coke. Can you give up Diet Coke for a week? In order to humble yourself before God? It's got to cost you something. Because here is the truth. Our calling will cost us our lives. Romans 12, 1 and 2. The calling from Jesus will cost you your very life. And if you can't give up Diet Coke, or if you can't give up some of your money, you will not give up your life. You just won't. You are sacrificing the temporal for the eternal. Because this is what the devil's afraid of. That's why he wants to stop the daily sacrifice. Because he knows it will put you in a place of power, spiritually, that he doesn't want you to be in. He wants to stop your daily sacrifice. Most everybody here works in a place where other people work. You ever have somebody from the office come up to you and say, hey, my sister's getting married over the next weekend. I'm scheduled for work. And could you please work for me? But you know what you have scheduled? You've got a rock climbing day scheduled with your friends. Can you sacrifice a rock climbing day with your friends so your coworker can go to his Sister's wedding. That's an easy one, right? Should be. Because, you know, non-Christians do that, don't they? They fill in for people at work, even when it costs them something. How about going the extra mile with your brothers and sisters here at Scum of the Earth? Don't Christians just annoy you sometimes? Don't they? I mean, really, seriously. Sister Sandpaper and Brother Brillo Pad are in every church I've ever been in. And they rub against you, and you're going, get me out of here. I, I love Jesus, but I don't like this. Can you go the extra mile? Can you be the listener to someone who has nobody listening to them the entire week long 
except for here at Sunday. Can you do that? Can you give up going to yogurt land or Greek town for just an extra 15 minutes and be kind and hospitable? Hospitable. There's another one. Can you open your home to people? Because you know what? Opening your home to people is a pain in the butt. Because they come, they eat your food, they dirty your house up, they use your dishes, and then they leave. And you've got to sacrifice all over again. Hospitality is a sacrifice. Babysitting is a sacrifice. Mary, God bless her, is kind of like the surrogate grandmother for all of scum babies, right? Uh, so she's babysitting this, this one couple's children. I, I think uh, one of the little kids actually locked all of them outside in the backyard for the rest of the day. Another time, uh, these two little girls had found a way to get up into the kitchen cabinets. I don't mean the ones on the floor where you can expect to find them. I mean, like, they took a chair, put it up, went above the broom closet, up there, closed the door, and then were quiet as church mice while Mary is searching all over the house. Or when two little boys decide to get into a fist fight, well, not a fist fight, in a wrestling match in her Sunday school class. <laughs> this is called sacrifice. This is called sacrificing yourself, your time, your energy, your love for the body of Christ. Okay, how many people here have moved within the last two years? Raise your hands. I'm thinking like almost everybody raised their hands. Okay, okay, it is a sacrifice to own a pickup truck. If you are in your 20s and you want to pick a truck, that is a sacrifice. All right? Or, or if you're a single guy and everybody and people think you're pretty strong and they want you to come and help move their furniture over and over. Because some people move like two or three times a year. That's a sacrifice. Giving people rides. Shutting up when other people are talking. We all want to tell our stories, right? Sacrificing means sometimes closing your mouth. This was one of those sacrifices that I had to learn. I had to shut up and ask people questions and find out about their lives. All right. I'll try and wrap this up. My desire and prayer for you is that your life and ministry have a radical flavor. I think what the world is waiting to see is a group of people who know what it means to sacrifice on a daily basis. And they will take notice of our Lord and Savior if we do that. Trust me. Show some extraordinary love. In 1939, a man named Howard Guinness, one of the early founders of the International Fellowship of Evangelical Students, wrote a little book called Sacrifice. He was trying to do then what I'm talking to you about now. He wrote this. Where are the young men and women of this generation who will hold their lives cheap 
and be faithful even unto death, who will lose their lives for Christ's, flinging them away for love of him. Where are those who will live dangerously and be reckless in his service? Where are the men of prayer? Where are the women who count God's word more important to them than their daily food? Where are the men who, like Moses of old, commune with God face to face as a man speaks with his friend? Where are God's men and women in this day of God's power? Here's the deal. You don't do this without a reward. You cannot sacrifice anything without getting much more of a reward from God than you can possibly handle. We give to God in teaspoons full, and He gives back to us in dump trucks. This is what happens. That's the nature of sacrifice. Our Father is so pleased when we actually share our time, our love, our life, our intelligence, our money, whatever, that He gives back to us in ways we never even imagined. What shall separate us from the love of God, Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? Of course the answer is no. But is the answer no because God spares us those things? Or because He ordains those things in our life and keeps us within them? Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. God does not spare his beloved children trials. He actually promises them. You will have plenty of occasions to sacrifice your life. Why? Because God loves you. He wants you to be like Jesus. He'll give back to you in ways you can't even imagine. The reward is this, that we get to know him. Daniel 11.32 says, But the people who know their God will resist. The people who know their God will resist. That's how you get to be a sacrificial person is when you get to know God. And getting to know God is not only the means to the end, it is the reward that you get when it's all over. In some ways, I can say you don't pay the price of sacrifice. You reap the rewards of God. When we get to heaven, our momentary and earthly trials will seem just insignificant. We are here for just a short time. We are a breath. We are a vapor. We are a flower of the grass that fades and is gone. You guys don't understand that yet. You're still in your 20s. But when you get to be in your 60s or 70s or 80s, you will look back on your life and go, man, that was quick. And the question is, will you have given your life to receive what Jesus has for you? And even more than that, will you have given your life so that you understand the calling that God has placed upon your life? Will you make a difference in the world? Will you make a mark in this world? Will the world be a better place when you leave it than when you came? 
Will somebody remember you someplace and sometime for being the kind of person they want to be in life? Can your life make a difference? I say it can make a difference primarily, yea, only through sacrifice. Telemachus was a monk who lived in the 4th century. He was a cloistered monk. That means he didn't see anybody. He was by himself in a room praying. The only other people he saw were other cloistered monks. But he felt God saying to him, go to Rome. He put his possessions in a sack and he set out for Rome. When he arrived in that city, people were thronging in the streets. He asked why all the excitement and was told that this was the day that the gladiators would be fighting and killing each other in the Colosseum. It was the day of the games. It was the Roman circus. He thought to himself, four centuries after Christ, and they are still killing each other for enjoyment? He ran to the Colosseum and heard the gladiators saying, Hail Caesar, we who are about to die salute you. And he thought, this is not right. He jumped over the railing, went out into the middle of the field, got between two gladiators and said, In the name of Christ, forbear. In the name of Christ, forbear. The crowd protested and began to shout, Run him through! Run him through! A gladiator came over and hit him in the stomach with the back of his sword. It sent Telemachus sprawling in the sand. He got up ran back again and said, In the name of Christ, forbear. The crowd continued to chant, Run him through. So one gladiator came over and plunged his sword through the little monk's stomach as he fell on the sand, which began to turn crimson with his blood. One last time, he gasped out. In the name of Christ, forbear. A hush came over 80,000 people in the Colosseum. Soon one man stood and left. And then another. And then another. And then more and more. And within minutes, all 80,000 people had emptied out of the arena. And that was the last known gladiatorial contest in the history of Rome. The only thing that is going to change this world for Jesus is our daily sacrifice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the calling to follow Jesus in his sacrifice. Help us. Help us to be true and not to shrink away from laying down our lives every day. And it's in his name we pray.